HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. White Oak Pastures is the only farm in the United States that has its own USDA-inspected red meat abattoir or slaughterhouse and its own USDA-inspected poultry abattoir or slaughterhouse. We partner with Whole Foods to deliver our high-quality meat and poultry from Miami, Florida, all the way to Princeton, New Jersey. One family, one farm, five generations, 145 years a full-circle return to sustainable land stewardship and humane animal stockmanship. For more information, please visit our website, whiteoakpastures.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. so much for tuning in to the Heritage Radio Network. We are coming to you live, as always, from the back of Roberta's Pizza on a lovely day in beautiful Bushwick, Brooklyn. You're listening to The Farm Report, and I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks. And today we're going to be chatting with author Philip ackerman Leist. Philip, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, Aaron. Really glad to be here with you. So I'm excited to kind of tuck into some of the themes that you explore in your most recent book, Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food Systems. But before we engage in, in some of those, you know, big thinking topics, um, why don't you give us a little bit of a sense uh, of your background? Because in addition to being an author, you, you also teach up at Green Mountain College and you farm. So give us a little context of the experiences that are kind of undergirding your, your thinking as you approach thinking about uh, building and rebuilding a, a regional food system. Sure. I you know, really started out with farming kind of in the shadow of my grandfather, who was a plant pathologist at North Carolina State and also a farmer. And so did quite a bit of um, you know, peaches, melons. Uh, had a fruit tree nursery down in North Carolina, and um, then also farmed in the Alps uh, for about four years, all told. And um, that certainly was influential in really helping me to see what a, a localized food system can look like. Uh, you know, one that's still fairly intact, at least um, in the 80s when I first got there. That was more the case. And um, then I've been at Green Mountain College for 17 years now, and uh, there we built out the GMC Farm and Food Project, uh, which is a really highly integrated program in which we're trying to combine the liberal arts, sustainable agriculture, food systems, community outreach, and renewable energy technologies, and um, 
just a, a fabulous place where one can get really creative and do a lot of great things with students. And so it's both experiential and, you know, a, a lot of good head knowledge, too. And, um, you know, so very fortunate to be there at Green Mountain. And we also have the nation's first online program in sustainable food systems. It's a graduate uh, degree. And that's a really fantastic program simply because we've got students scattered all across the United States and then also Canada, uh, one in Japan as well. So that's a really fantastic way for us to be able to compare food systems and in some cases not reinvent the wheel, but at the same time, you know, really recognize that the solutions are they're not always universal. They're certainly very localized. So I've been really privileged to, to lead a good life and then also have a wonderful family and a farm at home in Pollitt, Vermont, where we raise uh, grass-fed American milking Devon cattle. Oh, lovely. Well, one of the things I, I really loved about the book is you, in a, in a very organized way, kind of take the reader through some um, of the through kind of breaking down the complexities of, you know, thinking about existing problems and solutions in our regional food sheds. And what I'd, what I'd like to do today is, you know, of course, recommend that folks go out and, and check out the book because it's definitely super comprehensive and nice. So you can really kind of skip around it and tuck into different issues kind of at your leisure. But what I wanted to do on the show today was just kind of talk through with you some of the the kind of you, you you call them false divides. Um, and th- these are kind of questions that I feel like are thrown at folks like myself who work at engaging in, in a regional food supply. And I want to kind of get a sense of, of your response to them. And I want to start with the kind of urban uh, rural divide. You know, we're here in New York City. Um, you know, you're up in West Paulette, Vermont. How are we kind of looking at um, building a food shed together? I mean, how do are, are we on the same side? Are we on opposite sides? How do we work to support one another? And how do we even begin to kind of unpack some of those kind of connections and the responsibilities that we play on either side of those um, spaces? Right. Sure. Well, I, I really appreciate not only the question, but the, the context here is we're talking back and forth because that's exactly what I think needs to happen. We need to have many more of these conversations that, that are, in fact, fairly complex that link, you know, folks who are in the rural environments, uh, the farmers and otherwise, to, the, you know, those of you in the cities. And it's, um, it's something that I don't think we've, we've really tackled, you know, complexly enough at this point in time. So, you know, part of what I think needs to happen is that in the rural areas, we need to recognize that you know, in a lot of cases as we scale up, that we need to help uh, meet the markets in the urban areas. And at the same time, in an urban areas, uh, you know, urban agriculture is absolutely critical. I think it has a you know, fantastic role to play there. But at the same time, you know, it, it's always going to be somewhat limited um, in the degree to which it can actually produce the food for a city. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of cross-pollination that I think can happen that doesn't necessarily happen. You know, one of the things that Eric Allen, um, the daughter of Will Allen, who runs the growing power operation out of Chicago, one of the things that Erica noted to me was that, you know, one of the real challenges that they have is really bringing in the the wisdom, the savvy, the farming knowledge into the city, you know, that is something that's taken for granted in many cases in the rural areas. And so, you know, that's something that would be really helpful in a lot of these urban agriculture projects. And at the same time, I think we've we've got to recognize in the urban areas that, um, you know, we've these things can be translated and they have to be translated into a, a micro scale and also in an urban environment in ways that really make sense. So I'm excited about the possibilities. Yeah, and I think what you do such a great job throughout the book is kind of exploring and highlighting the fact that there's just a lot of gray space uh, 
Um, and, and it's not that urban egg or, or any of, any, any one thing is the right thing or necessarily the, the wrong thing. And I think, um, it's tough because the conversation gets so clouded with why things will or won't work. And there seems to be something of a hesitancy to, to recognize just like the realities of the complex system that we're living in. And I loved, you know, you, you kind of talk a little bit of string theory um, when you're when you're looking at defining uh, a local food supply. And I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of how you approach that question of what is local? How do we how do we think about that when we're saying that? What are we talking about? Right. Well, and you know, I, I guess I should start out in saying that you know, I I was on the the bandwagon with you know, many of the rest of us as we really began thinking about this, and you know, really around two thousand five, two thousand six, um, you know, the conversation started to become a bit more national, and so I, like many others, was really thinking about you know the the radius approach, and you know, sort of trying to find that that center point and use the string and and stretch that out and figure out how far out we should go and therefore, you know, the the distance with which we, we went outward would somehow, you know, be a value statement. And I, and it's not that that's not important, but at the same time, you know, we've got to recognize that these boundaries are, you know, between what is local and non-local, whatever that might be, you know, those boundaries are porous, they're flexible, the definitions make, um, you know, different senses to different audiences and, and also different points in time. You know, and sometimes it makes sense to to start with the hyperlocal, if you will, just because that's what we can get a handle on. It's what we can do well. There's the transparency there. And and then build out from there, too, and, and learn our lessons as we're doing that on the hyperlocal level and build out to, you know, a bit more of a, a regional scale. And ultimately, that's that's where I think we need to land is, um, you know, this interconnection between the local communities that are built upon a regional basis, a, region, a regional foundation. Is that that's the only way we're going to be able to scale this thing up and actually really have it functional over the long haul. So what what do you think? I mean, I think historically food systems were by their very nature, you know, regional um, because because of transportation constraints, technology constraints, like you just food just didn't come from very far. And as the world modernized and transportation opportunities opened up, you know, we've slowly been moving more and more towards a super global food system. And I'm wondering, is is there some aspect of the old system was a, a failure and not working in some way that we've kind of gone in the global direction? Or, what, you know, what has been the impetus of that shift? Yeah. Well, and, and as you know, in the, in the book, uh, the, the centerfold, if you will, really is the, this armor map from 1922, which I, I think tells a powerful story. It's not the only story, um, but it it gives a sense of what was going on in the early 20th century, and that was that you know folks started thinking about the country in terms of areas of agricultural specialization, and um, you know that that in and of itself wasn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, you know, one could make the argument that. You're really trying to, to fit the agriculture to the ecosystem. Um, but then the markets began to develop and things became much more galvanized. And suddenly, you know, that specialization really started to lead to a, a lack of diversity within the local setting. And, you know, so as you say, it's, it's related to transportation. It's also certainly related to mechanical refrigeration and that development. And then, of course, you know, the markets, you know, one could say they either followed suit or else they, you know, they, they set the stage for all of this. 
but that that specialization really started to push out the the possibilities that were you know smaller in scale that were more diverse and um you know as that system became highly efficient in many ways uh, you know that's a tricky word efficiency but as it became very highly efficient it really started to push a, a lot of the um Kind of smaller scale and, and even mid-scale things to the periphery and eventually in many cases kind of over the brink. So when we think about, you know, efficiencies and when we're, when we're looking at, uh, you know, pe- people often kind of critique the local food movement. They're like, well, doesn't it take, aren't you, you know, making a, har- a bigger carbon footprint um, purchasing from a local farmer because the efficiencies with regards to transportation are not the same as, you know, bringing things in in larger volumes. I mean, how do we kind of draw those distinctions of, of like, what does good efficiency look like? What does bad efficiency look like? Right. And and we all have the choice of defining efficiency in in different ways and and measuring it in different ways. And one of the the fascinating things that I think is happening out there is that we're we're using these so-called life cycle analyses to evaluate food systems. And and, and those are highly complex analyses. We're really trying to understand what local food systems look like as well as regional, national, and international. Um, You know, but what we have to think about is we put our faith in any of those life cycle analyses, no matter what the results is really trying to understand what the assumptions are you know that are that are driving that model that are really driving the inquiry so i i think as we start to look at you know local food systems there there are a lot of efficiencies there you know the farmer's pickup truck may not necessarily be one of those but then again if the farmer is really minimizing refrigeration along the way then that can make you know, quite a bit of sense um, and then also, as we start to look at local food systems, you know, there's the whole issue of, of freshness. And, you know, there's an efficiency that could be associated there. And when things are done well, done right, then certainly the, the freshness factor you know, can be considerably higher, you know, from the local products. And and then just, you know, the direct you know, kind of, um, change of hands in terms of the, the monetary aspects, you know, what what happens there not having as much in the way of the middleman, if you will, um, you know, that, that's an efficiency in some cases. It can make things a bit more inefficient, but it certainly helps the farmer to be able to pocket more of the cash. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you kind of talk a little bit about, well, a lot about marketplace values in, in Chapter 10. And, um, you know, you say rather than accepting the black and white views offered to us by corporate giants, our depiction of the food shed requires the tint of color in order to differ- differentiate the way of values. I'm wondering if you can expand on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I think it gets to be a little bit tricky. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm wedded to the notion of values in the marketplace, and yet at the same time, I think we have to recognize that those values may differ from community to community or individual to individual. Um, so, you know, the, the values that we have in Vermont, you know, in terms of uh, locals and what that means and actually, um, you know, trying to build that out are much different, you know, from what certain uh, places. I'm, I'm just outside of Detroit right now, and a much different scenario from what you know a place like Detroit faces, um, where you know it, it may not be the issue of having local produce. It may be more about having fresh produce, having a grocery store, having it accessible, having it affordable. Um, so you know, I, I think we've really got to appreciate the nuances of the particular places in which we live, and the, you know the, the values. You know, they're gonna they're really gonna vary. Uh, they're on a spectrum, uh, if you will. And that's a very important thing to recognize. And I, I think probably as a lot of us, and I put myself in this boat too, is we've 
pushed out this notion of local over the years, uh, we probably haven't been open enough to some of the diverse perspectives that are necessary there in terms of um, what what values matter within one's own community. Well, one of the things that's challenging for me, you know, when when you're kind of looking so intimately, like within your own community, is thinking about how much of the way our agri- you know, how much our agricultural landscape is shaped by national food policies, by state food policies. I mean, if we're looking to kind of respect and, and, and value things at a local level, I mean, how does that kind of local knowledge, the kind of nuance the local needs, how does that translate when you're looking at making a national or a statewide policy? Is that just, is that system also a, a broken system? Right. No, that's a great question, Aaron. And, I, you know, several of the trips I've made here uh, with the book lately have been really illuminating to me. And you know, a lot of cases, it'd be great to go back and be able to write it after the book tour. <laughs> you know, different things I've learned. But, um, you know, going to Iowa, to Arizona, to North Carolina, you know, places, you know, where you've got the large-scale production in many cases, a much more conservative political environment, Um you know, in, in some cases, a, a bit of outright hostility towards, you know, the local or diversified or sustainable agriculture. You know, it, it really is something that's very complex. And so, you know, the, the way I'm thinking about it these days is that, you know, we, we are really going to be most successful at doing what we can do on the local or the regional level. You know, I'm really thinking of these days and kind of the free of our um, collective will, if you will, or, you know, the ability to actually influence and make change. And that, for me, in many places is the place to start, but it's not where we get to just wrap it all up and, and set it aside and feel like we've done the job. It's going to take a long time to do it and do it right. But we do have to tackle the national issues because they do impact everything else. Um, you know, but we don't want to get lost in that, you know, and, and just give up hope because, you know, the figure I saw the other day was the um, dollars of lobbying that were put into the 2008 Farm Bill uh, the Center for Media Democracy estimated that was $173.5 million, you know, lobbying. Wow. And, you know, so can we counter that? Well, yeah, we can. I, I think there's evidence that, you know, we can push back, but it, it takes a highly um, you know, kind of consolidated effort. And, you know, at the same time that we're putting all that energy in there, I hate for us to forget the good work that has to happen back home. So a multi-pronged approach, which, I mean, ultimately seems like the solution mm-hmm. to everything in life that I, I come across from like deciding what to get for dinner to, you know, re- <laughs> rethinking our food shed. But we're going to take just a, a quick break and we come back. I want to talk a little bit about the role of education and universities in reshaping the food shed. So hang tight. Great. You're listening to 4 of 7 by Jack Inslee. Keep it locked here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
All right. Thanks and welcome back. You're listening to The Farm Report. I'm your host, Aaron Fairbanks, and we are talking rebuilding the food shed with Philip Ackerman Leist. Uh, Leist sorry. Um, so one of the one of the kind of I think the, the tools that I, I feel like doesn't come up so often in the conversation uh, with regards to rethinking the food shed and something I'd like to get your insight onto is the role of education. I mean, historically, we have, you know, land grant institutions that focus on um, education with regards to food production across the country. And I think in many ways, there's there's been a real kind of failure amongst those institutions to engage in some of the nuances that you outline in the book. And I'm curious, because you're in the role of educator, because you're at the forefront of such an innovative program, you know, what you think the role of education is, where it should be entering the um, classroom. Is it, you know, grade school uh, high school, college, um, and and what are some of the successes and failures of of the land grant system? So that's like eight questions. So, like. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, wrote me back in if you need. To I know, I know. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I do think you bring out a really important point here, Aaron, and and that is that many of the land grants, and I don't want to put them all in the same bag, that's not fair, and, and that this is evolving and changing, but many of the land grants really abdicated their responsibility you know, to the people. And ultimately, when you look at you know the formation of the land-grant system, you know, it was really supposed to be there for the farmers and, and the citizens and the rural communities. And you know, these days, all too many of the land grants have really moved to you know, catering to industry. And, um, you know, it's not that that shouldn't be part of the conversation, part of the equation. You know, you can't rule out industry, but they shouldn't be running the ships here. And so, you know, what's happened as a result of that, I think, is that, you know, we've really lost the opportunities to keep rural communities alive and thriving. We've really lost the ability to, you know, protect, you know, the the true inheritances that matter so much, um, not just to folks in the United States, but worldwide in terms of, you know, um, seeds. And, you know, so, and then also the other thing with the land grants is they've, um, you know, too often they've become so siloed, um, you know, and, and this food systems thing is so highly interdisciplinary. So, you know, as, as I look back kind of on my, my own career and being at Green Mountain College, a place I'm incredibly lucky to, to be teaching, um, you know, I, I had to fight tooth and nail 17 years ago when I started, you know, to really kind of bring in agriculture and, and food into the liberal arts curriculum. It was seen as something that was anathema and really something that the land grants did, but because they did abdicate their responsibility in so many ways, it's provided a, a pretty unique niche for not just Green Mountain College, but other places. And Dickinson College has done a fantastic job down in Pennsylvania with this. Luther College in Iowa is doing really deep work at Prescott in Arizona. So there are these land grants, uh, I'm sorry, there are these liberal arts you know, colleges around the country that have really you know, come to the table and, and help redefine what needs to happen in terms of education, both for sustainable agriculture and now for food systems. And, and food systems, is the, <laughs> that's the hot word right now, and, and I think it's great. I think there's some dangers there, which we could talk about as well. Um, you know, so higher education is, is really beginning to take a different look here. And one of the things that I don't think that any of us have addressed very well, um, almost not at all, frankly, is, um, you know, this whole issue of, of debt, student loans. And if we're teaching people to go into the food system, you know, to go into sustainable agriculture, any kind of agriculture for that matter, walking out of these places with huge debt loads makes no sense. Um, 
So I, I wish we had something like a Farm for America program. Um, you know, I think that would, you know, as, as we've got Teach for America, where we do some um, loan forgiveness for the folks who actually go out and, and do this really important work. Um, so that's that's my take on higher education, and, um, you know, <laughs> at least in a nutshell. And then as we look at, you know, the education system otherwise in the public schools, there's just so much that needs to be done there. And the fact that not only have we yanked out almost all education in terms of um, teaching students how to how to farm and even home economics, uh, for that matter, not only have we, we done that, but we also have encouraged anyone who's going into a so-called college prep track, you know, not to touch those things. That, um, you know, those are the things you don't do if you're going to college in many cases. And but you know, there's a huge cultural shift, and I'm really optimistic. And you know, fortunately, students at all levels are beginning to demand to demand that we bring all of this back into the fold. Yeah, and I and I think you know, obviously, one of the more kind of urgent problems. Um, on the horizon is the kind of aging of our farm, our, our, our farming population here in the United States. Um, and I'm wondering if, if you have come across anything that makes you feel, I don't know, a little bit better about kind of replacing that information base and kind of growing that, that movement of young farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I feel incredibly optimistic. I mean, I just I I get to live it every day and seeing the the enthusiasm of the young people as I you know walk into my office and you know see them out in the farm and uh, wish I were out there with them, but I've become more of a bureaucrat here. But I'm um, you know just watching the the level of engagement and excitement and and then watching them as alums you know go out and actually farm you know very often within you know our immediate environs at Green Mountain College. So, you know, I, I see that excitement. It's real. It's incredibly hard work. I think, you know, they have to realize when they get out, it's, you know, it's going to be five or ten years of really hard work to actually be able to build their own enterprise. So that that I feel very optimistic about. I think your point about, you know, the information gap is really important because what I don't feel as optimistic about is um, what we're not, uh, that is what we're, we're doing or not doing in terms of education and really linking, you know, folks from that generation who are beginning to step out to this younger generation because there's so much wisdom there. And it's not necessarily um, the kind of knowledge that gets passed on, you know, in the academic universe very well. It's, it's, it's the subtleties, it's the nuances of farming, agriculture, understanding food systems. And, um, you know, it's really incumbent upon us as educators to find ways to, to capture that, and but also to build the relationships between those people and our students. So if we're sitting around in our ivory tower and we're not getting our students out, you know, interactive with these these farmers and also other folks in the food system, then we're we're not doing our job. You know, we're just going to let all this disappear, and there's just no excuse for that. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about one of the kind of other. Uh, you know, strains of conversation that I always get a little bogged down in, and that's the kind of argument where you know you, people are, are wanting you to, forcing you to, asking you to make a, a decision or make a ranking between you know buying local and and buying organic, and you know I think that's just kind of engaging in the wrong conversation. But maybe you can give us some tools for you know a, a response to that. Sure, I you know that, that's a place where I hope the conversations um, can be more complex, and we don't always use sort of the you know, the media bites. You know, and the the thing that's bothered me for a long time is you know what what so many have said that local trumps organic or has trumped organic, and 
um, you know, that that's not a it's not a good thing, and that comes from someone who spent you know several years of his life in a rubber suit and a respirator from you know, spraying pesticides in, in Italy. Um, you know, not I mean, some of my fondest times in my life, but not my fondest task. And I, I think we just really have to recognize that we we can't dismiss organic. And you know, and it doesn't matter as much to me if people are certified or not certified. That's that's not the issue. It's whether they're actually utilizing you know sustainable practices. Um, you know, and, and organic provides some good guidelines for that. But you know, the if if you're really focused on local, then you also want to have a healthy ecosystem. And so you can't just dismiss outright the notion of organic. But at the same time, those of us who are avid proponents of organic, sustainable agriculture, um, you know, if we're really serious about this local thing, we can't polarize the conversations, you know, right off the bat by either dismissing the people who are utilizing, you know, conventional practices or denigrating them. And, and that's frankly something that you know, has, has really been an error on the part, I, I think, of a lot of us in the sustainable ag realm is, um, you know, this, the words we use, you know, they, they dichotomize, they denigrate, you know, they, they really cast a pall uh, that it makes it very difficult to have the kinds of complex dialogue we need to have to rebuild, you know, really vibrant local food systems because we've all got to find common ground here somewhere. So thinking about kind of some strategies, uh, some next steps, you know, we do here in New York City have, uh, you know, the city has a, a food policy coordinator, you know, it's an office of, I think, like one or one, two people. Um, and, and you are starting to see that in, you know, more major metropolitan cities across the U.S., um, what what do you think is the role for someone in that position, and how does that change if you're in a place like New York City versus, uh, you know, Paulette? Is, is there should there be should every city have that role, and what what should they be doing? Sure, um, you know, I, I think as as far as what they, they should be doing, I mean, it's it's really going to depend upon the the city, the community's priorities, obviously, but um. You know, you've you've got to start somewhere, and in many cases, um, starting with the local food system is a place where all of a sudden you you realize everything is connected to everything else, and so that's always a, a good place to start. Except for the fact that it's also one of the most complex, um, you know, situations to try to to rectify. So um, it, it's not always the easiest starting point, but just you know, having several one or several people in place who can. Do everything from, you know, starting to use mapping technologies, really looking at the, you know, what the existing realities are, you know, potentially what the, the threats are down the road, how to actually build things out for the future, you know, a sustainable future that makes sense in terms of, you know, land use, transportation, distribution, processing facilities, where things are located, you know, the economic development opportunities um, that are lying latent, you know, how to infuse those in certain areas of the community that really need you know, some economic buildup. So, you know, just having someone there who's really kind of keeping it not just in the back of everyone's mind, but really putting it at the forefront, you know, of communities and city decision-making is, is absolutely vital. Um, so, you know, in, in many cases, the spokesperson role, I think, is particularly important. And it is a, it's a much different kind of scenario, certainly in a city, um, than it is in a smaller rural community. And um, there are different challenges there. It's not necessarily easier in a rural community, um, you know, to to try to get people together. I, I was just actually um, in North Carolina a couple of days ago and talking to um, Captain Harvey Plyler there, who is a 
a fisherman, and you know, one of the things he noted was how difficult it is to get you know either farmers or fisher fisher folk together to have a conversation, to come to common ground, and then actually to be able to sustain an idea, a mission, a concept, you know, to move that forward. So it's not necessarily easier in the rural environments. It's it's just a different beast in some ways. Well, Philip, unfortunately, we are out of time, but thank you so much for uh, taking some time out to join us today. Well, thank you, Aaron, and thanks for all of your great work there with Heritage Farm Radio. I think it's a wonderful project. I'm really happy to be part of it here. Awesome. Well, for those of you out there listening, um, you know, pick up your community resilience guide, Rebuilding the Food Shed, How to Create Local, Sustainable, and Secure Food System by our guest, Philip ackerman Leist. And uh, big thanks to Chelsea Green for uh, another great uh, book in, into the canon. Stay tuned. Up next, we have the Grunway Sea Market Update, and we'll be chatting uh, markets of, of New York City. So hang tight for that. This, like all 30 of our live weekly shows, are available for free as a download through Stitcher or iTunes. You can also find everything on our website, www.heritageradionetwork.org. We are a member-supported organization, so if you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider becoming a member by clicking that Donate tab today. Thanks so much, and stay tuned in. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.